welcome to the third episode in this podcast series from the Linklater Employee Incentives Team on the lessons PLCs can take from the financial services sector in managing risk and setting board pay. I'm Harry Meek, an associate in the team. And I'm Mirit Ehrenstein, Council PSL in the team. In this episode, we'll look at the use of restricted shares and overriding formulaic outcomes as alternative methods of risk adjustment and the participants' likely reactions to this. In the previous episode, we talked about the use of performance metrics and balanced scorecards in risk-adjusting awards, but this isn't the only way to do it. At the other end of the spectrum, there is the opposite view. Instead of having several performance targets, you don't have any. The argument is that the balanced scorecard or even multiple key performance indicators, which we call KPIs, have the disadvantage of focusing the participants' attention on those metrics. This can be positive and, for example, it can align the participant to the corporate strategy, but it may risk doing so at the expense of other factors which turn out to be the most important ones to the business over the three-year performance period or even longer. It's very difficult at the start of an LT performance period to know what those extra factors would be. Professor Alex Edmonds of the London Business School has written and researched extensively on this, and he argues that there is a single measure that captures all inputs into company performance, and this is the long-term stock price. He favors a restricted share model where you deliver equity without performance conditions, and you don't have any underpin conditions either. Instead, you have a long-term vesting horizon to provide a focus only on the long-term share price. He also argues that the stock price is, in the long run, better at capturing and reflecting all elements of performance and risk. This includes financial inputs, things like current profits, expected future profits, growth opportunities, and balance sheet strength but it also includes factors which many feel are less capable of affecting the share price, things like corporate culture, customer satisfaction, and relations with stakeholders. Now, Marit, that's not a direct lesson from the financial services sector. FS firms do use performance criteria to determine annual bonuses, but listed banks that operate LTIPs use performance measures that they often call a balanced scorecard. Having said that, a key part of the financial regulatory regime is long-term deferral into equity. And the rationale is that this creates a long-term alignment to share price and the risks facing and taken by the business over the long-term. So the parallels are clear. But Harry, there is a third approach which falls between a balanced scorecard and a restricted shares approach. This is being able to override the outcome of formulaic performance conditions on a discretionary basis. This is clearly quite important at the moment for PLCs. This has been a key element of the financial services regulatory regime for a long time. FS firms are not allowed to have purely formulaic bonus or vesting outcomes because those are not flexible enough to ensure that the award level reflects all relevant risks. Historically, in the FS sector, there would be a, a formulaic profit share, for example, where a team or desk would have a bonus pool calculated as a fixed proportion of that team's profits. 
That type of structure now requires a discretionary override. This is to ensure that the notional bonus pool, which you end up with using just a formula, can be adjusted to reflect all types of risk and a wider assessment of performance, performance of the firm, of the team, or of the individual. And there are already examples of PLCs in the mining sector of executive remuneration being cut significantly in some cases on a discretionary basis due to safety incidents. So, what comes out of FS firms' experiences in applying this principle over the years? Well, the starting point is that it's critical to make sure that all of your relevant documents are aligned and consistent with the remuneration committee having that type of discretion. A power to override the outcome of a performance condition needs to be clearly recorded. And there should be nothing to contradict it in any of your other documents or communication. When you're dealing with employees, a court is likely to interpret any discrepancies in the employee's favour. For FS firms, bringing documents into line has been a long and laborious process. In particular, bonus plan documents sometimes get less attention than LTIP plan rules, but they also need careful review. Can often be tricky to even find a coherent set of bonus documents. Harry, what we found was that plan rules or policies of FS firms may well include a range of different discretions, and it is important to be clear what each provision is designed to do. Traditional PLC LTIPs probably already include a discretionary power to amend performance conditions if something has happened since grant, and if they don't have this power, they really should. Similarly, PLC LTIPs are now very likely to include a discretion to apply malice. But Marit, neither of those discretions achieves what the Corporate Governance Code provision on overriding the outcome of performance conditions is aimed at. The discretionary power to amend performance conditions is about doing this during the performance period where something happens that causes the original condition no longer to operate as intended. This something could be, for example, some form of capital restructure. Malice provisions are usually drafted to apply only in certain circumstances. So to be able to override formulaic outcomes, it's likely to be necessary to redraft your plan rules to properly incorporate that power. And by doing so, you achieve better clarity and posterity than if, for example, that power was in the grant documents, which is something we often see. People, for example, will often put it in the performance condition schedule. Now that's all well and good, Marie, but what about participants' reactions to all of this? Really good questions, Harry, because another lesson that FS firms have learned is that participants often resist this and in some cases have very strong feelings about the whole thing. From their point of view, this is how it goes. They are objecting to the idea that they can achieve the performance outcomes, but then have that vesting level taken away from them as they see it. Going back to essentials, this sort of exercise requires trust in the decision maker, that is the remuneration committee. Executives may now understand the stakeholder climate that is requiring companies to move to this type of model and the power to override formulaic outcomes. But this may be less obvious to other LT participants especially in companies which have LT participation, which is quite broad based. And firms will need to guard against the temptation to resolve that tension by downplaying the discretionary override, 
because that power really needs to be clear in the documents, including LTIP explanatory guides or similar communications. Another key question is, when do you exercise that power? But as with most things, the devil on this is very much in the detail. It's often where you try to balance, on the one hand, participants' preference for the scope of the discretion to be clearly defined, against, on the other, a broad discretion which gives the REMCO useful flexibility. The broadest wording is the discretion to reduce vesting levels, including to nil, as the remuneration committee determines, taking into account any factors that it decides are relevant. But you could also word the discretion more specifically. For example, you could have a discretion to adjust outcomes to ensure that vesting levels reflect the committee's assessment of the company's underlying performance or for financial performance. And those small words that frame that discretion are obviously critical. The key point here, Harry, is that drafting the discretion is very important. There's no market standard and we don't necessarily think there should be. When remuneration committees are considering their approach, they need to focus on what level of discretion they're taking and its likely practical consequences. We have a salutary reminder of this in the Karelian experience and the uncomfortable level of focus that the base parliamentary committee placed on the scope of the clawback power and how the remuneration committee members had considered it. If you remember, Harry, this was all in the remuneration committee minutes, which were made public. Another issue here is making sure that the REMCO members have all the information they need to be able to exercise or not to exercise that override discretion. After all, the decision not to exercise the override could be as important as the decision to do so. For FS firms, and in particular those larger institutions and banks, this isn't new. They've had to grapple with it for a while. They've had to look at how relevant issues are escalated appropriately to ensure the decision maker has the information they need to be able to make or not make that decision. So, Harry, the takeaway here is work out if your variable pay structure is the right one for you, bearing in mind your risk adjustment options. Do you need to look at the whole matrix of documents and your employee communications more closely? To continue listening, please click on to the next episode in this podcast series where we look at the exercise of discretion. In the meantime, please do get in touch if you'd like to discuss any of the topics we've spoken about today in greater detail. Thanks, Marit.